Welcome to Psych in the City podcast, where sexual fantasies meet sexual realities. Join me as I learn and unlearn with the help of expert guests and friends, all the weird stuff we've been taught about our sexual and psychological selves. Through exposure, education, and conversation, Psych in the City hopes to reduce stigma around mental health and sexuality. I'm a licensed social worker training to become a clinical sex therapist and educator. I love learning about sex, human behavior, and psychology, and believe that having access to education and quality information is a human right. Not to mention, it enables us to make informed choices about the lives we live. This is Psych in the City. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Psych in the City. I'm your host, Sarah Kelleher. And today we have a guest, a friend of mine and sex education expert, Ellen Strite. Hi, Ellen. Hey, how are you? Good. So Ellen has a ton of experience as a sex educator, and I'm just going to hype her up a little bit. Um, She has a master's of public health degree from Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. She focused her coursework on sexuality, sexual, and reproductive health. She has over 10 years of experience providing sexuality education in school, clinic, and community-based settings, working with ages 10 through adulthood. She has dedicated her career to serving black and brown communities historically deprived of resources as a result of systematic and institutionalized racism. Since graduating, she has worked for a government-funded organization in a supportive role, training high school health teachers to provide comprehensive sexuality education in their health classes, as well as educating parents on how to talk to their teens about sexuality. She will soon, however, be embarking on a new adventure and joining the health education strategy team at a healthcare marketing agency, where she'll be using her expertise in health education and training to guide the content of their campaigns. Wow, Ellen, quite a resume. (laughs) How does it... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) How, How does it feel to be changing course a bit and moving away from the nonprofit sector after being in that environment for most of your career are you concerned at all yeah I mean I think it's scary you know um I thought I'd always work in nonprofit and public sector um Mm. and I'm and I worry that you know the kind of work I'll be doing won't like feed my soul in the same way um you know, I'm excited for a lot of the benefits that come with the change you know um there's like a lot of resources available and um, in marketing that are not available in nonprofit and public sector. Um, so I'm excited to see like what that's all about and, and see if I can, if I can make the work feel like I'm, you know, still having a positive impact on the world. Right. Yeah. Right. So let's get into it. Um, what, what brought you into this work? Why study sexuality and reproductive health? Why, why public health? Why is it important? Yeah. Um, so I, I always kind of say that I came into it by accident. I, um, I was a neuroscience major in college and um, was really interested in like childhood brain development and the impact of trauma and things like that. So I ended up picking up a minor in human rights and then I needed a, an internship uh, to satisfy that minor. And the internship mm. I found was teaching sex ed for uh, seventh graders for Planned Parenthood in LA, and mm. um, and so I had to write an oh, right, essay. Oh, California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had to write an essay like justifying what this had to do with human rights, and I became really interested in sort of the the age old debate between abstinence only versus comprehensive sex ed, and I came to really believe that access to comprehensive sexuality education and information about our bodies is a fundamental human right. Um, and I loved, I, you know, as it turns out, I love teaching sex ed. So after graduating, I became a teacher for a couple years and was, I was teaching science, but they asked me to teach sex ed. And, um, after that experience, I realized that what I really wanted to do was improving access to good high quality sex education so that's why I went back to school to get my MPH. Um, and 
yeah, it's just been like, a, you know, it's been a, it's been a, a real passion of mine for the last 10 plus years, I guess. Do you have to have a master's in public health to do the work that you were doing? No, definitely not. I mean, I have, I had coworkers who were MSWs. So there are uh, social workers that do this work. Um, you don't need a master's degree to become a sex educator. You know, that, you know, being just like a sex educator is almost looked at as more of like an entry level position. Um, you know, you can also mm. be like a, I was a health educator in a clinic before going back to school and like, you don't need to go to school to know the content and to be able to do that. Um, I think what the graduate degree does is it gives you the ability to sort of um, move up in, in your level of responsibility and impact, you know what I mean? And sort of changing the landscape of sex ed. Got it. So with, you mentioned comprehensive sex education. So, so what is comprehensive sex ed? versus abstinence-based sex ed? Yeah, so in really simple terms, abstinence uh, abstinence only education or abstinence only until marriage programs um, is what they're sometimes called, is this is a format of sex ed where the, the message is that for young people, for teens, for, you know, for specifically for teens, um, that, and, and for kids, like, you know, when you're teaching kids of all ages about sex, that, um, that abstinence is the only acceptable choice, um, unless they're in a married monogamous relationship. And it comes with a whole host of problems typically in that they tend to provide incorrect information on condoms and birth control. They tend to provide incorrect information on the psychological effects of having sex outside the context of marriage. Um, they mm. tend to just really, really like downplay the efficacy of condoms and birth control and hype up the negative psychological impact of having sex before marriage. And typically they are also not LGBTQ plus inclusive. So like sex is defined as between a man and a woman. I'm sorry. Marriage is, is defined as between a man and a woman. So, um, so that's sort of like abstinence only in a nutshell. Um, not every abstinence only program is harmful in those ways, but the, the vast majority of them are. And I'll, they mm. pretty much exclusively do not provide comprehensive information on how to use condoms, how to access birth control, et cetera, et cetera. And then comprehensive is really like the opposite of that. It provides information on condoms and birth control and, um, you know, things like that. I think, you know, what's problematic about the term comprehensive is that comprehensive means a lot of different things. A lot of the, a lot of the quote unquote comprehensive curricula don't include information on LGBTQ inclusion, um, either because they're outdated or, you know, a lot of them tend to be like, they are, they're a lot of the message with a lot of comprehensive is, is like what I, what I've heard referred to as risk focused, comprehensive sex ed where it's like you shouldn't have sex because you're you shouldn't have sex because you're too young but if you're gonna do it here the here's the information you need right but it's not still kind of fear-based it's fear-based yeah it's like you know you're too young this is not responsible it's probably unsafe but here's how you make it safer right um Mm. and that's you know you could argue that's an improvement because it is giving young people information on condoms and birth control. But when you frame it that way, it's not like, what are, you know, and it tends to be really focused on teaching refusal skills and things like that. And so the kind of sex education that I advocate for and that I believe in is, is like more sex positive sex education or holistic, Mm -hmm. um, in the United States oh, is that's pretty what holistic means. Yeah. So it includes like, I mean, it would not just include like information on anatomy, birth control condoms, but it would also include information on relationships and Got it. gender and sexual orientation and also the impact of racism and other forms of oppression mm. on how people express their sexuality and feel free to explore their sexuality. Um, and, so, and the message so would be, you- Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, the message would be less, this is dangerous, but here's how you stay safe. And more like, sex is actually a normal and healthy part of growing up. And it's actually, 
it's a cultural norm in the United States that sex happening with teenagers is somehow wrong um, and irresponsible, mm. but that's not a, that's not a universal belief. Like there's, you know, like the Netherlands tends to have a more like sex and relationships are a normal part of adolescence and adults view themselves as responsible for helping their teens navigate all of that safely. And so, you know, in the Netherlands, they have a teen birth rate of, or a pregnancy rate of like eight out of a thousand. And here it's like 50 out of a thousand. So, and then, you know, just like on a, on a more qualitative level, I find this a little more compelling that in the U S when they ask teens how they felt about their first sexual experience, um, the overarching theme of their responses is I wish I'd waited. And in the Netherlands, they reported as being well-timed, wanted, and fun. So, like, that's huge, oh, wow. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, there's, like, a big problem here on, like, how we look at teen sexuality. And that sort of, like, translates into the kind of sex ed we offer. So when you see people's profiles of sex-positive sex ed, that means that it's kind of intersectional in the sense that they're talking about all the ways our sexuality can be oppressed and and as opposed to just talking about condoms and birth control exactly exactly got it so what are some of the barriers in the various um places where you've conducted sex education is it what have been the biggest barriers to bringing sex education or at least sex positive sex education into those environments is it the administration asking you to talk not talk about some things? Is it resistance to sex education as a whole? Is it larger than that? Mm. Um, you know, to be honest, I don't face a whole lot of barriers providing sex ed where I do it because I think like it's mm. kind of a it's kind of a misconception that folks are against sex ed. Like the vast majority of parents actually want their teens to get sex ed. Um, oh, wow. It's just that in our country, the people that are opposed to sex ed are the most vocal, right? So like, mm. we don't get we don't get a whole lot of opposition in schools. They all pretty much want teens to get sex ed because, you know, there is in line with the belief that like teen sexuality is dangerous. There is also this like, we need to keep them all, like they're all going to get pregnant and have babies if we don't give them sex ed. Like they're just going to run mm. out there and everyone's going to have chlamydia and they're all going to have babies and like, it's going to be this huge problem. And, you know, um, you know, for the most part, people want sex ed. It's just, it's the content of the sex ed can be tricky. I think that, you know, because of the culture we have around teen sexuality, the popular paradigm is risk focused, you know, they want us to focus on the risks. Um, any mention of like the possible, potential like positive impacts of sex like to even suggest that like a 16 or 17 year old could have satisfying loving uh you know pleasurable pleasurable sex is like considered really radical so I think that's where like that's that's where sort of the um there can be pushback got it so so I don't know if you know this off offhand but is there a current requirement in new york city regarding sex education there is yeah so in new york well in new york city um teens need a health credit to graduate they need to have a semester of health um and Mm. that is you know that the evidence for whether they've had it or not is on their transcript so that's pretty much a done deal um in new york city there's also a that actually might be a New York state policy. I can't remember, but in New York city specifically, mm. there is a requirement that the health class has to contain comprehensive, um, medically accurate sex ed. And mm. there is, there is not an opt out policy here. So in a lot of city or a lot of districts, they'll have like a, a letter that goes home and parents can like sign their student out of sex ed just by like sending in a form with a signature in New York City, mm. they make it a little more difficult um, if a parent wants to opt their student out of certain lessons, and specifically the lessons on birth control and condoms. They have to write a letter to the principal, um, and it and the the letter that goes home that explains this provides them with information on what needs to be contained in their letter. Um, but young people cannot be ex- 
cannot be exempt. Like writing the letter doesn't excuse them from the whole sex ed unit. Um, they have Got to it. be there for the lessons on communication and abstinence and relationships and stuff like that. They just can't be there for the condom and birth control lessons. Um, but the problem is that like the health credit that shows up on a transcript doesn't specify if sex ed was provided. So if the health teacher is not an experienced health teacher, doesn't want to be teaching health and is being forced or, you know, maybe they're okay with teaching health, but they don't know anything about sex ed, they might just skip it and there's no one to catch them on it. So um, right. the work of my old program was really to fill that gap and make sure that folks were teaching sex ed. And where do those requirements for the NYC schools, does it come from the Department of Health? It comes from the Department of Ed. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So there are things, there are policies like that that they might collaborate with Department of Health on, but um, any like curriculum specific requirements come from the DOE. Got it. So I guess, I mean, the larger question is this battle of access to reproductive rights in the United States and does it, the whole myth of, then are people, you know, if we if we give w- women and young people access to reproductive health, are are people going to start using abortions as birth control? Mm. So does does restricting access to abortion and reproductive health services lead to better outcomes? Is that a valid is is that a valid argument? I mean. <laughs> In short, no. I mean, I know the answer, but... (laughs) In short, no. I mean, like... So, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I think, like, the first thing is that there is no scientific evidence... There is no evidence to suggest that with abortion being made accessible that people are going to use abortion as birth control. Like, there are just not that many women out there. There are just not that many people out there with uteruses who are like, yeah, I want to get multiple abortions. That sounds good. Like, that sounds like safe and gentle on my body. Like, most people just don't want that. You know, the reality is, of course, people and and like, I know know that. (laughs) Right. right. um, No, but I want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think like, you know, the, the problem is that in places where abortion is restricted, other methods of family planning are also restricted. So like the same people that don't want abortions available also don't want women to have access to birth control. They also don't want, they also are opposed to the Affordable Care Act, which provides women with free preventive care and birth control. Like, so it's, sorry, I keep saying women and I try to, you know, use more inclusive language. People with uteruses, you're going to hear me catching myself there. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, what, what folks need is more access to all methods of family planning, including information, including services, inclu- like preventive services and then uh, abortion as, as a possible last resort if, if other methods fail. And I think like the myth, and this comes up a lot in sex ed, the myth is that like when people have more information and access, they're going to like do the thing more. So more, more sex ed means they're all going to go out and have sex, right? Like more right. birth control means everyone's going to go out and have sex. <laughs> it's like always leads to more sex, which like, I don't know. I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with that. But if you think there's something wrong with it, the reality is like more access doesn't mean riskier behavior. It means less risky behavior. Right. They're still doing the thing, but just they're doing it Yeah. And like, you know, more access to sex ed has been shown with teens and like communicating with their parents about sex. All of these are shown that like the more teens talk about sex with trusted adults doesn't equate to more sex. And it means if anything, it leads to later onset of sex and fewer sexual partners and more use like greater use of condoms and birth control and just general happier experiences with sex, which is ultimately, I think, what most of us want for our our teens, you know? Right. And, and for ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so why, I know this is a loaded question, but why do you think we continue to restrict access to sexual health information in the United States or continue to come from a fear-based, a fear-based place regarding our sexual health information? If, if it's shown that it doesn't 
work and that it actually creates the opposite outcomes than we're trying to to do well i think first of all the very idea that teen sex that there is another way to look at teen sexuality is just not Mm. something that most people consider like it is so deeply ingrained within our culture that people don't understand that there's another way to think about it. They think this is fact. They think Mm. it is literal fact that it is biologically, developmentally not safe or normal or healthy for teens to be having sex. Um, And that it is as, as such, it is their job to find a way that's going to keep teens safe and thereby not have sex. Um, It's only when you really start to study this stuff that you're like, Oh, there are other countries that actually think the complete opposite. What their teens, the message their teens get is that sex and relationships are a normal part of growing up. Um, They're a normal part of being a teen. If they are in a loving and trusted relationship, sex is a normal byproduct of that. You know, monogamous Mm. long-term relationships are encouraged. So there is less of this like hookup culture there. Um, Teens Mm. like... Many teens, many parents report that, like, if their 17-year-old is in a monogamous relationship and wants to have sex, they would rather their teen bring their partner over to the house and do it at home where they're safe and they can, like, make sure they Mm. have condoms than, like, teens here who are, like, going and doing it in a car or, like, in a stairwell, you know? Um, And so there's just – in general – here there is just not that awareness that there is another way to think and when people are challenged on that there there is a lot of resistance because it's every it's what we know everything we've been taught is that like teens sex needs to be contained you know so like to to be told that like this is actually not a fact this is a a belief system that can be changed is like mind-blowing and then i you know i think the other thing is there's a lot of disagreement on what the actual solution is like my belief is that the solution lies in changing the culture and changing the narrative changing the belief Mm. system as the foundation and then everything else follows whereas other people you know it's like no they just need we just need more birth control we need more access to birth control we need more access to condoms we need more sex education and like all of these things are important and necessary but like if we don't change the like rotten soil (laughs) that's like leading people to think that like it's somehow deviant for a 17 year old to want to be intimate with a partner. Um, Then all of these other solutions are just like band-aid solutions. And like, you know, just the last piece is that we have like an enormous amount of racial and economic inequality in this country. So like the kind of sex ed and resources that, some teens have access to because they're not funded by government programs and they're not, you know, they have like more, you know, like white students are more likely to have sex positive sex education because they're more likely to go to private school where they hire a proper sex educator who can do whatever they want. Whereas black and brown students are more likely to go to public school, more likely to have a teacher who's not a sex educator and are more likely to be funded by programs that, are funded by the federal government who is like, you know, risk focus. That's all we want. (laughs) So there's like a massive, massive like discrepancy in the kind of sex ed kids get, the amount of sex ed kids get, the amount of resources they have access to and the messages they're getting about what their sexuality means. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, all it's, it's just, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this, about why we keep trying to criminalize social issues when historically it has never worked. Like you can't Mm. wish away abortion. You can't wish away Mm. sex work. You can't, you can't policy these things away. These things exist whether or not we put policies in place. Mm -hmm. And so the policies actually help people do them safely. And as opposed to it's going to happen anyway. So the whole discussion of it just seems so antiquated because it's like, you know, I wanted to ask the why do we continue to restrict when we know that it's not working? It's because it has to be something more because the research shows that it doesn't work. So it's it's mm-hmm. something deeper than it's our culture. You know, it's something deeper than 
oh, because we think it works. It's not like we're trying it for the first time and just seeing if it works. We mm. Historically, it has proven that social issues are not do not get better. I mean, prohibition, case in point, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't social issues don't get better with restriction and with criminalization. So, you know, it's a larger issue of why do we keep restricting access to, you know, sex positive sex ed or reproductive health when it's it's shown in in the it's shown in the statistics and the research of places that have the highest std rates and unplanned pregnancies are the places with the least sex education Mm -hmm. am i am i right in saying that yeah and yeah they're the places with the most restricted i mean there's literally sex ed laws are by state and um Mm. And by school district. And there, I mean, there are literally states where it is written in the law that sex, sexuality education should not, and I quote, promote a homosexual lifestyle, quote. Like, wow. that's stuff that's written in the law. <laughs> so, yeah, there are massive discrepancies in the kind of sex ed that's provided. And, you know, those states do tend to have higher rates of unintended teen pregnancy. And when, so when you say they're state um, regulated, so that means that each individual state has the option to decide what type of sex ed they're going to provide to their schools and then so it it's, from district or? It's more like this, yes. Yeah, so the state has the right to set a, a policy on the kind of sex ed that needs to be provided or, or to make restrictions on sex ed that can't be provided. So like New York state might say that all sex education provided in schools needs to be medically accurate, like LGBTQ inclusive, whatever it might like, but it doesn't necessarily require that schools teach sex ed. It's just like, if you do teach sex ed, this is what it has to be. Then there are states that actually write into law that it does need to be provided. And here is what it should look like. It should look like medically accurate, et cetera. And then there are states that, you know, where it's the opposite. They either required or not and then they they say it can't include this or it it has to promote abstinence it has to it has to present abstinence as the only acceptable option for teens like whatever it is um and then it's up to the school districts ultimately to figure out what what their sex ed will look like and sometimes down to the individual school in the case of new york it's like it's written in a policy that it has to be provided and it has to be comprehensive but like there is no oversight so, like, when it comes to, like, right. Mr. Johnson, the PE teacher at X high school in Brooklyn, like, that Mr. Johnson, if if they don't know how to teach sex ed and they are not getting any support, they might just skip it. Because, like, right. they don't know what to do. Because they, <laughs> yeah, because they have weird feelings about their own sexuality. They don't know how to mm-hmm. do it. And then they just gloss over it because no one's making sure that they don't gloss over it. Yep. They grew up in the same country oh, with the okay. same messed up ideas about sex so they are you know those teens that are taught that sex is something to be ashamed of grow up into adults who believe that sex is something to be ashamed of because the Mm. only time we teach sex ed is when people are young and when they're young we're telling them this is dangerous and then they get older and no there's no one there to tell them like how to have sex as how to have safe pleasurable enjoyable sex as an adult so they're like oh yeah sex is dangerous and shameful got it Right. You will get pregnant and die. You will get pregnant and um, die. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I'd like to do a little Russian roulette game of sorts. I have yeah. a list of like 23 questions that I found that um, that I found that are like the most asked or just, <clears throat> you know, common sex ed questions. And I'd like you to choose a number mm-hmm. and then cor- and then I will ask the question corresponding. So the numbers are one through Let's do one through 20. Okay. So just pick a number. Pick a number, baby. Um, seven. <laughs> what is semen made out of? Oh, that's a great question. So semen <laughs> is the fluid that comes out of a penis when a person with a penis ejaculates. Um, and it is made up of... Uh, fluid from the seminal vesicles and the prostate mm. gland and those organs like their job is just to secrete fluid um the fluid has like nutrients and you know like uh it, it contains 
like uh, nutrients and fluids and other supports that that support the actual sperm cells um and help mm. them move faster and you know retain their health and mo- motility and mobility so um so those two fluids plus sperm are what equal semen got it got it yeah okay and an- another number 12 <laughs> Is everyone capable of having anal sex? Um, you know, I think like I'm going to answer that question like I would answer it as a sex educator in that um, yes. it all sort of depends on what the person wants and everybody's different. So like there will be variations in like the size of someone's anus, which would which could mm-hmm. impact like the level of comfort they would feel having anal sex, like Mm. anal sex is not something that's exclusive to same sex, you know, couples, two people with a penis, although that is what it tends to get associated with. But anyone who wants to have anal sex can most likely find a way to do it. But there will be an anatomical differences that could make it easier or harder. And what a lot of people find that helps is like, you know, using a lot of lubricant, water-based lubricant, typically with a condom. Um, there is an increased chance of STI transmission because it's like a tighter space. There's more opportunity for tearing, which can make STI transmission uh, riskier. So it's important to use a condom and and to use lubricant, like a a good water-based lubricant. Um, And then other people will like kind of like work their way up to full anal sex. Like they might have someone use their fingers to sort of like loosen it up and, there's also like sex toys people can get that will like kind of stretch it out a little bit. So I think it, it depends on anatomy and it depends on how interested in it, trying it someone is. Buy a water-based lube. Mm, That's a good question. Yeah. So oil-based lubricants like KY jelly, I'm sorry, not KY jelly. I think KY jelly is water-based. Oil-based lubricants like Vaseline or baby oil. Those things will actually break down latex and make it more likely to tear. Um, so any oh, condoms that you find the in the condom st- to tear, yeah, the condom will tear. Yeah. So any any Got lubricant it. you find in the store that's made to be used with latex condoms is going to be a water based, like KY Jelly, Astroglide, the Trojan brand uh, lubricant. All of that stuff is water based. Mm. Got it. Yeah. And but does but does water based or oil based does it matter with you know anal tearing like does one make a difference over the other or no 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 definitely not it's just got it if there is anal tearing then it's more likely that an STI could be transmitted so you want to make sure your condom is on and not tearing so that's why the kind of lube you use is important to make sure the condom is effective got it makes sense yes okay another one. Um, 14. (laughs) G-spot versus clitoral orgasms. What is the difference and how do you know if you've had one? So this one's a little bit harder to answer just because every body is so different. So there, there tends to be like a spot inside a woman's vagina that is more sensitive, um, to, to an orgasm and to, to stimulation that's often called the G-spot. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily the cervix. But anyway, I think, um, the, the, you know, the thing about the clitoris is the clitoris's only job is to provide sexual pleasure. It's just made up of a bunch of nerve endings that is similar to the head of the penis and nerve endings. And um, mm. so a lot, you know, the only thing I'm going to say is that Every like some women or I'm sorry, some people with uteruses really like to be stimulated in the clit. Um, mm. Others really don't like it as much, and 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 others are more like feel have like more sensation on the inside, the G spot, the cervix, whatever. Um, so it's you know I think that for a long time. You know, especially watch, like, a lot of people get their sex ed from porn, which is always, like, just, like, (laughs) people getting hammered, right? And it's, like, when I watch most, like, mainstream porn, I'm, like, wow, that doesn't look like it feels good at all, you know? 
because there's virtually no clitoral stimulation. And so a lot of, there was like all this pushback at some point of like, no, you got to touch the clitoris. You got to, and then people got the crazy idea that they were meant to like be a DJ. And like, they're just like only (laughs) touching the clitoris, like click, 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 you know? And like, I, um, (laughs) a lot of people, that doesn't feel good. You're not a DJ. You're not, you're not a peachy, like relax. So I, RIP by the way, but. Uh, yeah, yeah totally. no, I, mean, I think like what it, what I, it really is, is like asking the person, do you prefer the clitor? Do you prefer this? And like, um, in terms of like how it feels, that's like a little bit harder to describe, I think, um, cause that's different right. for everybody. Um, but where a person feels most pleasure is going to vary. Cause I know for myself, I don't think I've ever had a G spot orgasm. I, mm. I can only as of right now in my current sexual journey only Mm. I need my clit to be touched and rubbed Mm. but definitely not in the DJ style because that definitely doesn't feel good and takes me away from an orgasm yeah yeah light little touches (laughs) yeah yeah light little touches yeah I know for me that it's got to be like both that's like the preference if it's just one or the other it's probably not going to do the job um, mm. if there's too much focus on one and not the other, then it's probably not going to work. There needs to be like a little bit of both to like for the best right. outcome and experience. <laughs> right. And yeah. I know, I mean, and yeah, and you're right. I feel like there was a shift all of a sudden where it was like, you know, people came out and were like, Oh, like in, in porn, people never touch the clit. And then there was like this clit movement and then people yeah. were literally DJing on clit. Literally DJing like, on clitorises. <laughs> Like, this is also not what we want. Yeah, like, people with penises thought they were so woke because they knew what the clit was, and then they wouldn't leave it alone. It's like, no, chill. That hurts. It's like, you're hurting me. Yeah, You're literally hurting. (laughs) Like, my back is convulsing the way you're touching it. Stop. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think it's such, you know, because I've read that everywhere, that the you know, the clit is the only organ specifically for pleasure. Like that's Mm -hmm. its only job. Whereas the penis has a few functions, Mm -hmm. whereas the clit is just for pleasure. And so, you know, because it's so sensitive, even when I started to masturbate, you know, I feel like I was like rough and wild with it. And then I was like, okay, wait, ow. And then I started to touch (laughs) it lightly. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is actually what I need because it's so sensitive that I don't need that much touch, but I need some. I feel like it's Mm -hmm. really helpful and helping me to climax. Yeah. Um, yep. I mean, is, I mean, is, is a lot of your answers to some of the anatomical questions that you receive from students and, and from teens, like that everybody is different, that everything's yeah. normal essentially. Yeah. I like, because... I, I shy away from the word normal because then they're like, Oh my God, if I don't have this thing, I'm not normal. So it's like, mm. I think like the word, the language I use is that like every everybody is different some some others you like some experience this some have this others have this you know you are an individual it's up to you what you like best um if you think there's something wrong or something feels abnormal for you talk to a provider you know but what everyone considers to be normal is is gonna vary depending on the person yeah that's a good that's a good thing you shy away from normal because i think yeah, I think I read um, Come As You Are. Have mm. you read that book? Mm-mm. But but it's basically this PhD, Emily Nagowski or some or I, I forget her how to pronounce her last name, but but she's a sex educator. And um, and she's like, you know, the question I get is, am I normal? Everybody just wants to know if they're normal. And the, yeah. and, and the truth is, like, we're all we're all abnormal because we all need different things. And like, it's none of it. The, the term normal is irrelevant because Mm -hmm. our bodies differ so individually that like what works for some like there's no normal when it comes to sex it's just what what works for you and your body yeah and so yeah Um, and when it comes to your body there's there's what's normal for you so that's why like it's so harmful when we you know when we discourage you know you know toddlers touch their genitals right and like the response right the healthy response or like the, the productive response would be like, you know, this is something we do in private. It's like a great way to get to know your body, but we shouldn't do it in front of other people. Like, 
not like the typical response is to like slap their hand away or things like that. And like young people get the message right. that they shouldn't explore their bodies or that it's somehow shameful. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's actually really dangerous, right? Because like when it comes to things like discharge or how something looks or smells or feels like we actually need to know what's normal to know if something's not normal, which is, you know, why women do a self breast exam, you know, is like, we need right. to know what it feels like normally for us to know what it feels like abnormally for us. So when you're working with, this is question eight, by the way, what, mm-hmm. when you are working with parents or how, what is the, what is the, what is the advice you give to parents on how to talk to their teens about sexuality in order to create a sex positive environment for teen? Wow. Is it just being <laughs> open? And yeah. I think, you know, there's so much, so, so much, but the, 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 the general idea is that like sex ed should start early. It should be often, mm. you know, like sex. And to be clear, sexuality education is not just penetration. It's like people reduce right. it to like oral, anal, vaginal intercourse. And it's so much more than that. Right. Sexuality is our gender. It's our feelings. It's our relationships. It's our bodies. It's, you know, so like conversations around body image and touching and consent and friendship and things like that should start from birth right? Like this should be normalized part of the conversation from day one. And as the young person gets older, the content is going to shift, right? Because like, they're probably not asking about anal sex when they're five, but they might hear (laughs) about anal sex when they're 10. They might hear someone talk about it and want to know what's up. And like, you give them the answer that you would give a 10 year old, which is not going to be the answer you give a 17 year old, right? So, um, You know, the the general advice I give is to be open, to be communicative, to not wait for them to come to you with questions, but to look for teachable moments. Like if you're watching a movie together and people are getting hot and heavy or, you know, maybe maybe you're watching, maybe you're listening to to music and there's some like sexually explicit lyrics that they're singing along to that they don't know what they mean. Like these are all moments where you can say, like, what do you think about that? What do you know about that? Like, do your friends talk about that? Have you thought about dating? Right, I like her. Yeah, it's like right. ask. I like looking for yeah, like look for authentic ways to bring be- it up, so it doesn't feel weird. Right, right, totally. Yeah. So what? So another question. Choose, choose one. Uh, seventeen. Okay. Rape fantasies. Does my partner want to rape me or want to rape people if they want to experiment with rape play? Should I be concerned? You know, this, I am going to be honest (laughs) and say this is something I don't know a whole lot about. Um, I don't know, like, the psychology around that. You know, my gut, my gut, like, more liberal stance on sex is that, like, people have all kinds of fantasies that one person might find weird and another doesn't like you know there's people that are into inflicting pain on their partner during sex and that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to inflict pain on the general population it's just and you know it's something they're interested in 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 sex and I think like like any other kind of sex whether it's rape play or not or fetish or not like there needs to be consent there needs to be clear explanation of you know you letting your partner know what you want to do, making sure they're okay with it, giving them the option to change their mind if they want to, like having some clear rules and boundaries. And as long as those boundaries are clearly laid out and both partners agree to them and follow them, I don't think my gut is that not, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are planning to sexually assault someone in, in in real life or even sexually assault their partner. Um, but it would just it would require like very careful planning and and rule setting and boundary setting right and fantasies are a very normal part of sexuality correct oh yeah yeah right right 100 percent. so (laughs) i remember actually you telling me one time when you were saying that actually it's helpful sometimes for people to fantasize even i 
I know for me, sometimes when I'm having sex with a partner, I will kind of kind of go above and try to envision us from below having sex and then Mm. in my mind and then it helps me to kind of get off because I like to see kind of the whole the whole thing as opposed to Mm -hmm. when I'm actually in the moment I'm only seeing like their up their up close face or something and I kind of want to see the body and it's Mm -hmm. helpful for me yeah and so I just go ahead yeah I think like the more I think like where people have trouble orgasming is like they're not their mind is in another place or they're not like really focused on the moment. And I think like part of being focused on the moment is focusing on an image or a scenario that is sexy to you or turns you on in some way. So I think like it's mm. very normal to like when you're having sex with someone to pretend you're having sex, maybe in different circumstances, like you're imagining you're doing it in public. If that gets you right. going or like in a bathroom stall or, you know, I know for me, like, I've actually had like fantasies about like cheating, which is really fucked up. But like imagining that like you're having an affair with somebody, you know, or that this no, person same, is like someone same, you're yeah. having an affair with, like, you know, adding, adding like your own imagery and cr- creativity and imagination to it is not like, doesn't mean that your partner alone is not sufficient to satisfy you. Like right. it's kind of like, sometimes like if I'm having sex and I know that like a little bit of clitoral stimulation is going to add to the experience. I will touch my own clit when we're having sex. And like, I've never had a partner be opposed to that because they're like, no, I need to be the sole giver of your pleasure. They're like, fuck it. If this is going to make you come great, 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 great. Cause then I get to feel good that I helped you come. And you know, like, so it's similar in terms of like adding your own fantasy to it. Like, I think like right. to expect a person to to give you an orgasm with with zero effort on your part to contribute to that is actually kind of ridiculous. Absolutely. And I know when when a partner goes down on me and is giving me oral, it's really helpful for me to be touching and moving other parts of my vulva so Mm. that it kind of enhances it for me and I'm not sure if I would be able to orgasm without that extra stimulation and Mm. you know people only have so many hands it's it's like I I think it's yeah I it's helpful for me to get to that place when I'm focusing on on um moving the parts that feel good enhancing the moment so so yeah Mm -hmm. I like that phrase of like it's kind of you know, you can't expect your partner, like you can't expect to orgasm with no, absolutely no effort on your part, even though maybe sometimes, sometimes that's how it's depicted in porn, yeah. but porn is meant yeah. for, like the idea... for entertainment, not sex education. <laughs> exactly. Like the you know? idea that someone yeah. is so, has so much sexual prowess that they just like give out orgasms is very popular in porn, but it's not real. Right. Right. Um, okay. An- another number three does masturbating too much affect a person's ability to come uh no I think like you know if someone were if someone is masturbating like um obsessively like it's interrupting their daily life (laughs) they can't complete tasks they can't focus on things um then it, it it's it's possible that it could be problematic you know they probably would want to talk to somebody about that um right. and it is it is conceivable that like it you know it would make you very particular about the way that you wanted to receive an orgasm um oh, if okay. if you came to expect it to be only that way but like for the general population and as a general rule of thumb there is nothing about ex- uh, frequent masturbation that makes like your genitals like less sensitive to sexual stimulation and things like that. Is it fair to say that if, so for example, I use the Hitachi, the vibrator, the Hitachi, and I I am used to, you know, I've been using it for several years. And is it, is it fair to say that my body gets used to kind of being stimulated the same way and then that makes it easier to come, but it doesn't necessarily take away from other ways to come. I just am more used to it or. 
Yeah, I think for most people, like, they know how to get themselves off, and they also enjoy another person getting them off. You know, like, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's far more sex, you know, it's far more socially acceptable for men to, or people with penises to masturbate than people with vulvas, right? And, like, there is, like, a general acceptance that people with penises masturbating a good amount is not going to make it so that they can't ejaculate from having sex with a person. So I think it's similar in, in for everybody. It's like, you might have a way that you know how to give yourself a quick orgasm on your own with your tool or your hand or whatever. And that doesn't necessarily mean that another person can't emulate that or that you can't have another experience with a human being. Right. But it doesn't make your genitals like less receptive to touching. I think that's like a, a a myth that people have like to, to discourage masturbation, which I, you know, don't even get me started there. Cause it's like also the same people, <laughs> also the same people that don't want people to have sex or have abortions or have birth control also don't want people to masturbate. So it's like masturbation is actually like a really nice way right, for people to explore. Yeah. That is literally a hundred percent guaranteed not to cause a pregnancy or an STI. Like we should right. all be encouraging masturbation, but instead we're like, nope, we can't do any of it. Right. You got to be right. married to have an orgasm and it has to lead to children. The end. Like, right. okay. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and also your partner should automatically know how to do it. Cause you shouldn't talk about sex. Cause that's unladylike. Mm-hmm. Right. And like the goal of sex shouldn't be for pleasure anyway. So you're a slut if you want right. pleasure. <laughs> right. Right. The goal and, of sex and, is and, to procreate. That's it. And you're right. I mean, that, you know, those early, you know, a shameful story of my own. Well, you know, I was masturbating at a young age and I'm actually doing it in school, which is pretty, st- which is pretty common for you know as we spoke about children to touch mm-hmm. their bodies yep my teacher told my mom and I remember my mom who you know is she's a conservative woman you know mm. she I've you know and she kind of was just like well why were you doing that what what you know she was like you can't do that and 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 I think she was you know in her defense she didn't know how to handle it and no. so her most parents reaction don't. right her initial reaction was to kind of be fearful of it and like oh my god what does this mean and in reality I think if she had some child development education or you know of that that's kind of standard and we just have to go about it as oh hey this is normal this is just something that we should do in private you know and 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 Mm -hmm. kind of have and 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 because then I mean after that I was so scared I mean I never masturbated in school again which was probably good but then I was scared to (laughs) masturbate and touch myself you know ever in general right for for a while yeah because I was like oh my god what does this mean it's bad I'm scared you know and and I think that did have an effect on my on my even to this day even maybe unconsciously it has a little bit of effect of like oh god like I masturbate too much and it's like do I or do I just think I do you know yeah 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 and so yeah that's just I think that's a good I, I remember reading that in my grad school program about like children touching themselves and 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 touching their friends and stuff is actually kind of a normal phase in development Mm -hmm. and because they're getting into this phase where they're exploring their bodies and they're and they're gaining awareness of like oh this is a body this is what I have you know kind of and I just I felt relief in that because I was like oh thank god I'm not like (laughs) you know yeah it's totally Um, normal and the role of parents is really to teach boundaries and that's where like a lot of parents sort of like mess up to be you know, like they don't mean to, it's just that they, they were educated in the same problematic way. And like their idea of setting a boundary is saying, don't do it. Whereas like, it's actually much more nuanced than that. There's nothing inherently wrong with exploring our body. It's just, we, you know, that, and it should be taught is that it's, we don't do it privately because it's shameful. We do it privately because it's a special thing that we get to experience with right. our body. And like, not everyone is comfortable seeing another person exploring their body. And you know, this is just something that we do in private because it's special to us and like other people don't get to experience that. We're the only ones that get to, to, to do that with our own body. And, and then, you know, the idea of touching other kids, you know, of course, boundaries and the topic of consent should be brought up. And unfortunately we live in a society where we don't talk about consent until people are like 
already 22 and in fraternities and getting wasted at frat parties and committing sexual assault. Cool. Then, then we talk about consent when really consent is a conversation to be had with like a three-year-old of, you know, right, right. what we need to, you know, if we want to touch our friend's body, how do we ask? And like, what parts of the body are okay to touch and what parts of the body are not okay to touch? And, you know, things like that. Those are consent is a, is a, is a thing that blows my mind. Cause like, we don't talk about it. We don't, we don't set, like have conversations. We like force, we literally force kids to, to hug members of the family. They don't want to hug. Right. And right. then we're and surprised. Then about, like, and then we're right. surprised when they don't know how to understand and respect consent as adults. And it's like, you know, it's not surprising. Yeah, of course. Right. And then it's like, if we're forcing young children to hug people that they don't want to hug, it's like, then I feel that the, the learn is that, oh, I don't have control or, or I don't have agency or over my mind. body. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't have the agency. I don't have an opinion on this. Like, this is what you just do. And that's problematic in and of itself because it's not just what you do, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. So, okay. So we have time for one more question and then I just want to like close, close with one thing. So one, okay. one more do you have a question that you specifically want me to talk about or should I just pick a number? Just pick a number. Unless you uh, have something that you no, not really. specifically I'll say, bring up. Not really, no. Um, 15. 15. Does it matter how much porn you watch? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the takeaway message regarding porn like we sort of touched upon is is just that Porn is literally its sole intent is entertainment. It is not sex education. And a lot of the sex right. that's depicted in porn is not actually pleasurable to most people. And it's not always safe. Um, so like if, you know, it's, it's all about being like a responsible consumer of porn. I think like the question about masturbation, if you do anything so much that it interferes with daily life, interferes with your ability to, have and maintain relationships then it's something to look at like if we're watching porn all day and we're not getting our job done and not right you know that's a problem but you know in terms of like watching porn is not problematic so long as we understand that it's for entertainment and it's not real got it so it's only a problem if you think it's a problem kind of yeah if you make it a problem it's a problem (laughs) right right i had a therapist say that to me once and i was just like Huh. because it's like kind of applicable to everything it's like if you're thinking that it's a problem it may be something that you want to look into yeah. you know yeah so I guess we'll close with you know being a sex educator and someone in this field for over 10 years like what is what have you learned about sexual like what is I, I know this is a loaded question but like what have you learned about sexuality and like sex education like your biggest takeaway you would say from from teaching populations about sex I think the biggest thing I've learned is just that it's something that everybody wants to talk about but they're like Mm. ashamed to at least here in the US it's like it's this weird catch 22 where you know, to talk about it is to be revealing like a part of yourself you should be ashamed of, but then to hide it Mm. actually leads to more shame, you know? So it's like kids and adults alike are eager and want to talk about sex and always have a good time. And, and there's also this, like this belief that like, if you find it uncomfortable, that means it's shameful. And it's like, it's okay to laugh. Like, it's okay. It's okay to laugh. Like, I still laugh sometimes when people say penis. Like, <laughs> that's just, <laughs> you know, like, laughing and discomfort yeah. doesn't mean bad. It just is like, I don't know. I think, like, the biggest thing I've learned is that we have just, like, a lot of work to do in changing the culture here because it's, we all want to talk about it. It's something we all experience. Like, we all have a sexuality. We all explore our sexuality in different ways and the more we hide it and try to 
keep it under wraps, like the more harm is done to ourselves and to others um, in terms of sexual relationships. And, um, you know, if we, if we could only just get over this like hang up we have here about how wrong and bad sex is and just like accept it as a normal part of life. Like I think about like how much happier people would be in their sexual lives, you know, but right. And themselves, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Ellen, thank you so much. This of was course. our, you know, our sex education plus myths plus everything episode with Ellen Strait. Um, Ellen, do you want people to be able to find you? The the one the one listener that I have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like. So it's hard because I don't really like. I don't have like a public social media account totally. or anything like that. Um. But... That's been the biggest thing for me because <laughs> I deleted my my uh, personal Instagram and then I had to like, uh... all these things and everyone's like and then everyone's like where's your Instagram people that I've been reaching out to do the podcast and I was like well I have like two followers so it's kind of uncomfortable but but no worries but but this yeah I mean you, you could just episode. you could just Google me <laughs> there you go there you go um, so thank you so much Ellen you've been absolutely incredible and good luck at your new job I can't wait to hear about Ooh. it. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thanks for having me. This is so fun. Oh, as always, as always, I have one other episode. Please share the podcast. It's the only way that people will ever find this. It's also really, really helpful to give me a review. Five stars are appreciated if you like it. And also if you don't like it. And if you don't like it, send it to your friends still because maybe they'll like it. So also follow me on Instagram, psychandthecitybk. Bye.